0: We're in Acts chapter 4 today. We're going to be reading the first 13 verses. Let me give you a little context as we get started here. Um, In the previous chapter, we find Peter and John on their way to a prayer meeting at the temple, afternoon prayer meeting, 3 o'clock. On their way in, they encountered a beggar who had been crippled for decades. God used them to miraculously heal that man and bring him to faith in Messiah Jesus, And the two apostles then used the opportunity that afforded to tell everyone about what God had done in Jesus, in his death, and particularly in his resurrection. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 4. Let me read for us. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. "...because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family." They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is our third week of the Bold Faith Initiative. And I want to start by repeating something I've already said about the word bold and then add something about the word faith. Don't try to be bold. Try to be authentic. Authentic people always look bold to those around them. And about the word faith, don't try to get faith. That is really a waste of time. Try instead to be real with God. Open your life to him. Clear away any obstructions, any habits or sins that close you off to him. And then your faith will start growing. And it'll grow quickly. In our text, Peter and John didn't set out to be bold. They didn't leave the house that morning, determined to do great works for God. But they were committed to obeying him. And they did love to tell people about the Jesus who had so rocked their world. Had you asked Peter's and John's friends, if they had bold faith, they would have said, do they ever? But Peter and John weren't thinking about being bold. They were just living in company with Jesus. If we do the same, people will say that we have bold faith too. In verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were teaching. The word translated, came up, is used in other contexts where it expresses antagonism or hostility. These guys weren't driving the welcome wagon. Jesus once told the apostles that if people persecuted him, they would persecute them as well. Here we see that coming true. In fact, this is almost a replay of what happened months before when Jesus himself stood in these same temple courts teaching. Luke writes about that in chapter 20. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and teachers of the law together with the elders came up. It's that same word that expresses hostility to him. The captain of the temple guard, mentioned in verse 1, is also mentioned in the gospels. It's possible, I think it's likely even, That this is the same man who led the mob that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If that was the case, we can imagine how Peter and John felt when they saw him approaching. They'd been in Gethsemane that night. They knew this man. They knew what he was capable of. Verse 2 says that these people were disturbed. The word means something like pained or annoyed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, we've already been told that these are Sadducees. The priests were largely Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Nor did they approve of lay people teaching in the temple. And tasked as they were by their Roman overlords with keeping peace, they especially didn't approve of large, noisy crowds like the one that it gathered. Crowds led to riots, and riots led to uprisings, and uprisings led to the downfall of high priests and their privileged inner circle. Jewish law dictated that high priests serve for life. Once you became high priest, you would be high priest until you died. But under the Roman occupation, there was something like 20 high priests in 50 years. Whenever the Romans were displeased, the high priest was deposed. And that was reason enough for these men to be disturbed. Now, verse 3 tells us that they seized, that's a really strong word in Greek, they seized Peter and John and put them in jail. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law, he's talking about the Sanhedrin, these are the three groups that constituted the Jewish high court, convened, and on the docket was the question of what to do with the apostles. Does it surprise you at all that These men viewed the gospel as a threat. But the gospel is a threat to the status quo, whether political or personal. The gospel threatens to change society, and it threatens to change us. It confronts us with a Jesus who claims to be our Lord and the Lord of lords. The gospel's always been viewed as a threat. And politicians the world over have responded to that threat in much the same way for millennia. They put Christians behind bars. But all over the globe, jails and prisons have served as incubators for growing the faith. That was true in the first century. It's true today. These men could lock up Peter and John. They couldn't lock up the gospel So verse 4, many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. I love the fact that in a couple chapters we find out that many priests, people who belonged to the same group and party as these men, had come to believe in Jesus as well. Now verse 6 lists by name some of the high-ranking leaders who sat on the Sanhedrin. Luke calls Annas the high priest, which is interesting because he had been removed from office years earlier. But he was the power broker par excellence. His hands pulled the strings in Israeli government for decades. Caiaphas, who's mentioned, was high priest when Jesus was killed. And he was Annas' son-in-law. The John mentioned here was probably his grandson who would later become high priest. The family of Annas was a dynasty in Israel's politics. Seven high priests came from that family. Now recall that it was these same people who met to decide Jesus' fate and condemned him to death. Peter and John were brought before them. The Greek is something like stood them in the midst, that is, in the dock, just as Jesus had been. Here they were facing the same unjust judge, the same corrupt court, and the same power-hungry autocrat that their master had faced. When Jesus was arrested, Peter followed him, you may remember, right into the palace of the high priest. I think intent on freeing him. And I believe that that short sword that he showed in the garden, he still had. But on that night, Peter had tried to be bold. And what happened? He quailed. He denied Jesus three times. He saved his own skin, but almost lost his own soul. That's what comes from trying to be bold rather than trying to be real. But this time is different. Peter's no longer trying to prove himself. He's not thinking about being bold, and yet he's as bold as a lion. The difference? You find it in verse 8. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The obstructions have been cleared away. He's connected to God, and he has a power in his life that he didn't have that first time. Jesus had warned his disciples that they would be dragged before the courts. But he promised them that when that happened, the Holy Spirit would give them words to say. Whenever you're arrested, this is Mark chapter 13, right right before Jesus himself was arrested, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what it's given you at the time, for it's not you speaking. It's the Holy Spirit. Here we see that promise being fulfilled. Look at the wisdom and the boldness that the Holy Spirit inspires. Peter doesn't display any defensiveness. Instead, he's on the offense. I love how he addresses the Sanhedrin in verse 9. He says, in effect, I'm not sure why we're here. But if we were arrested and thrown in jail and dragged before the court because we shown kindness to a cripple, You know, that had to smart. Old Annas could feel the blood rising to his face. A few months before, when he was trying to be bold, Peter ended up denying that he knew Jesus at all. Everything is different now. He says, verse 10, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that this man was healed. By now, Annas' blood is boiling. Who did these Galilean nobodies think they were? Back in verse 7, when the court began their inquiry, they asked, by what power or name did you do this? The Greek sentence is written to emphasize the word you. You, you country bumpkins, you fishermen. How did you do this? Well, Peter tells them how they did this. Through the name of Jesus. One moment, Peter's crediting Jesus for the crippled man's healing, and the next, he's blaming the court for Jesus' wrongful death. Verse 10, you crucified Jesus. Verse 11, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Later, the court's going to complain that these men are trying to put the blood of Jesus on them. Well, that's right where it belonged. You really want to know how this miracle was done? It was done in the only name, verse 12, under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were ordinary, unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus, or literally that they were with Jesus. That's how they stand undaunted. And that's the secret of bold faith and bold obedience. Spending time with Jesus. Not an idea of Jesus. Not even the ideas of Jesus. But with Jesus himself, which is still possible. Now the Sanhedrin must have been furious. Their blood pressure is rising. What are they going to do? Everyone, verse 14 could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. An outstanding miracle had been done, verse 16, and there was no denying it. But they could try to nip this thing in the bud. So they called Peter and John back in and threatened them, commanding them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That same kind of thing, by the way, is happening to Christians today around the Muslim world in the form of anti-conversion laws. And Christians are being threatened, if you speak in this man's name, you're going to jail. And they do. Look at how Peter and John respond, verse 19. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. He didn't back down one inch. That's bold obedience. But notice again that the emphasis is not on boldness. These men aren't speaking because they're bold. They're speaking because they can't keep quiet. Their lives have been so transformed by what they have seen Jesus do and heard him say that talking about him is as natural as breathing. I've been in church families where the preacher is always urging people to go out and witness. And, and I think that's appropriate. Sometimes they try to guilt the congregation Into witnessing, and that's not appropriate. (laughs) Jesus didn't tell his disciples to witness. He told them that they would be witnesses when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Jesus would be so much a part of their lives that they would naturally speak about what they had seen him do and heard him say. Sometimes people are terrified of talking about Jesus. Because they're rarely seeing or hearing Jesus do anything in their lives. So the best they can do is talk about ideas, not about a real person. Peter and John didn't have that trouble. They had seen, and they were still seeing, Jesus at work. The Sanhedrin didn't know what to do with them. So they did what authorities have always done with inconvenient Christians. They threatened them. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Those threats, though, were not idle. In the next chapter, the apostles are back in jail. In the following chapter, Stephen, a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, is arrested. In the chapter after that, he's executed and a wave of persecution, breaks out against the church. Families were forced to leave their jobs, flee their homes, live as refugees. In a world that defies God, obedience can be costly. Peter and John took those threats seriously. So, what did they do? Did they go into hiding? Did they leave the region? No, they went back to their friends and they prayed. Bold obedience leads to bold prayer, which leads to bold obedience, which leads to more prayer. Look at their prayer, which starts in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. Pause there for just a moment. That's an unusual title in the New Testament. It only appears four times. It comes from the Greek word despotes, from which we get our word despot. It connotes God's complete ownership over his people. God, these early Christians knew, can do with us whatever he pleases. Does that worry you? When you hear that God can do whatever he pleases with you, do thoughts of suffering and loss come to your mind? If they do, you've got God all wrong. Yes, he can do with us whatever he pleases. But stop for a moment and ask what pleases him. It pleases him to save, to build up, to love, and to conform his people to the image of his son for their great good and his endless delight. You never have to be afraid of what pleases God. It won't be bad for you. The disciples' prayer begins with praise and it rests on Scripture, which is a wise policy for us to follow. They remember as they pray that God is unstoppable. And then they make their request. And their request is not for their safety. It's not for their enemies' destruction. They leave God to deal with the threats, verse 29. And what they ask is this, "Lord, give us boldness to speak your word." In fact, the NIV says to speak your word with great boldness, literally with complete boldness or complete openness. The next verse does not so much express a request, as the NIV phrases it, as it does an assumption. It might be better translated, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness as you stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs. In other words, they're not demanding God to act in miraculous ways. They're expecting him to. They went back to their jobs and their friends and their homes expecting that God was already at work in those places and that he would act and those actions would support their words. The result of the prayer scene in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all, not just the church leaders, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word boldly. Whenever God has worked powerfully in his church throughout history, it has not been the leaders alone who speak his word boldly. The entire church does. In fact, one of the ways to figure out whether some powerful thing in a church is happening because God is at work there or if it's happening because human emotions are in play is to see what the children do. When the children are affected, and they too speak God's word boldly, it's evidence that this is an authentic work of God. The place where they were, met, where they were meeting was shaken. I suppose that's meant to be taken literally. They felt the earth move. The 4th century Bishop John Chrysostom said, the place was shaken, and that made them the more unshaken. God who shakes the powers of heaven was at their right hand. Therefore, they would not be moved. Billy Graham once said, Courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. The courage of Peter and John emboldened their friends. Bold faith led, as it always does, to bold obedience, which led to bold prayer, which led, verse 32 through verse 36, to bold sacrifice. But that's next week's sermon. Let me close by reminding you that bold obedience is not presumption. Obedience is always a response, not an initiation. We should really be calling this month the bold faith response, not the bold faith initiative. Sometimes when a dynamic speaker talks about faith and he tells us amazing stories mind-blowing stories and he urges us to go out and do great things for god he stirs us all up and we can only think of going out and doing something remarkable for christ those speakers have stirred me up i've thought that way myself but it's getting things out of order those strong feelings and intentions will wane if we're acting on our own initiative bold faith is a response to god's word bold obedience is a response to his command Instead of getting stirred up and going out to do something great for God, we need to get stirred up and go in to his word and listen to what he's telling us. Our emotions can't sustain our obedience, but his word can and does. So the question is not, what shall I go and do for God? The question is, what is God telling me to do? Obey that, and God will stretch out his hand and work in your life in powerful ways. Now let's pray. I pray.